Take the usual podcast hosting companies and you'll stay in expensive wonderland. Take the podcast of Matrix hosting and you'll experience a completely different world of whole podcast library hosting. Choose wisely at podcastmatrix.com. That's podcastmatrix.com. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. In order to better understand someone and how they came to be the person that they are, an origin story, so to speak, sort of like the way a hero or a villain in comic books is revealed to readers, can help make things more clear and hopefully the topic or character more interesting. My origin story may or may not have a great interest to our listeners, but it does involve our first guest to the podcast. I'm a Wisconsin Badger, through and through. I spent 13 years in Madison, Wisconsin. I started there for my undergraduate degree and then stayed there for med school. I completed my residency and I served an extra year as chief resident in pediatrics at UW Children's Hospital. I finally left the mothership, so to speak, and I did a two-year sports medicine fellowship at Vanderbilt University in Nashville. When I was an undergrad, I tried to keep interest outside of medicine, kind of keep my balance and keep me sane. So one of those things I did was being a DJ, and then I eventually became a program director and eventually a station manager for WLHA, now known as WSUM. It's the student radio station on campus at UW-Madison. I truly enjoyed being behind the microphone in our Thursday night 80 Musics block of shows, and they became very popular, and we developed a super loyal following. The idea of creating a podcast was very intriguing to me because it would allow me to get back behind the microphone, just in a slightly different role. Funny enough, my on-air name was The Doctor. I know it's cheesy, but obviously it foreshadowed my current profession. I actually thought in high school the type of doctor I wanted to be was actually a heart surgeon. I loved cardio activity. I liked it because I was a cross-country runner and track runner in high school, and I thought the heart was cool. As time went on, I knew that it wasn't going to be the best fit for me. I loved kids and working with kids, so I had a pretty good idea that being a pediatrician would be the way things go, and that was the case as I started med school. The medical school at UW-Madison had a heavy focus on training primary care physicians. During our first year in medical school, we were part of a program called GPP, or the Generalist Partners Program. It brought us out to clinics once a week, working with primary care doctors, but we also had a small group mentor who helped us with the logistics of taking a history and just learning overall what it was like to be a practicing physician. My mentor is our first guest for the program, Dr. Greg Landry. When I first met Greg, he was friendly, really down to earth. I thought it was great to be able to be paired with a pediatrician, but when I found out that he practiced both adolescent and sports medicine, and that it wasn't just orthopedic surgeons who were able to do sports medicine, I knew that pathway was what I was going to choose. Greg was a fantastic mentor to me in medical school and throughout my residency and beyond, and it's been a very supportive colleague. I'm not sure if our paths didn't cross and I wasn't paired with him as my small group leader that I would be doing what I do today. Greg's teaching and mentoring, along with Dr. David Bernhardt, were the two individuals who were able to start molding the clay that has helped shape my career in pediatric sports medicine, and I'm really excited to have Greg on my first podcast today as an appropriate origin story for my career, as well as this podcast. But Greg actually can also be considered part of the origin story for pediatric sports medicine as a medical specialty, and we're going to explore that in this episode. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Halstead, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. 
Our guest today is Dr. Greg Landry. Dr. Landry graduated from Indiana School of Medicine in 1980 and completed his residency in pediatrics in 1983 at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Following a fellowship in ambulatory pediatrics, Dr. Landry joined the faculty of the UW Medical School in 1984. In 1988, he developed the first pediatric department-based primary care sports medicine fellowship in the country. He was one of 20 founders of the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine, and he served AMSSM as their secretary-treasurer from 1991 through 1995 and their president from 1997 to 1998. In 1992, he was chosen to be the United States team physician for the Winter Olympic Games and covered cross-country skiing and the biathlon in France that year. In 2001, the American Academy of Pediatrics awarded him the Thomas Schaefer Pediatric Sports Medicine Award for Lifetime Achievement in Pediatric Sports Medicine. For 31 years, he served as head medical team physician for the University of Wisconsin's athletic teams and a staff physician for the UW Hospital Sports Medicine and Fitness Center. He recently decided it was time to hang up his stethoscope and retired in 2017. Greg, welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thanks, Mark. We talked about earlier in my introduction that this is kind of an origin story. It's an origin story for me as a podcaster. It's an origin story for me as how I got into my career and your influence in that. So tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got interested overall in medicine and sports medicine. My story is a little bit unique in that I decided I wanted to be a doctor fairly early in life. I knew I was always interested in science, and then I kind of liked the idea of helping people. And I can remember as early as seven or eight thinking that maybe I would want to go to medical school. The interest in sports medicine came much later. You know, sports medicine was essentially part of orthopedics for a long time, and I don't think I realized till fairly late in residency that sports medicine might be something I could do as a pediatrician. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting when we talk about that because we typically think about sports medicine as being basically an orthopedics job. And even still, I think that's sometimes that perception. But it's helpful to kind of give us a little idea as far as, you know, back when you started, how, how did that kind of transition to being a pediatrician, being a sports medicine doctor, how did that actually wind up occurring? One of the things that happened is that I had a lot of opportunities to do quote-unquote sports medicine as a pediatric resident. I got to help with pre-participation physicals for the varsity athletes. They enlisted the help of residents. They had an established uh, annual uh, sports medicine symposium that I attended as a resident. And then I had two important people in the community that kept encouraging me to do things related to sports medicine. The first was John Stevenson, who was then director of adolescent medicine. And then the other one was Bill Bartlett, who was in private practice and was a longtime uh, head uh, team physician for La Folla High School. And both of those guys kept encouraging me in that area during residency. Obviously, I, I know those names well. Those were influential people that, that I knew about from when, when I trained with you. Were there other people that kind of supported you along the way, kind of even more, like, say, kind of on a national standpoint? Yes and no. I mean, the, the Academy of Pediatrics had a committee on sports medicine and fitness. Of course, that's it's no longer called a committee, it's a council, mm-hmm. that, that I think legitimized sports medicine as a subspecialty of pediatrics and a, an important area of interest for uh, their constituency. I, I think that was, that was an important thing for me to know about as a possibility. But I, don't, I can't think of anybody, well, actually some of what happened is the head team physician was an orthopedic surgeon named Bill Clancy here. And he came in the mid-'70s and actually established a very good sports medicine program in the uh, Department of Orthopedics. And 
unlike other areas of the country, he strongly encouraged my involvement and was a real important ally in helping me develop a faculty position. Yeah, I think that's that's important. I think if we're not getting that support from, from orthopedics, then probably what we do doesn't get valued or it doesn't really happen. I know I've certainly seen that along my career is having certainly not only support from, from people like you, but, but the orthopedic surgeons that I've worked with along the way have been really influential of helping me grow my career too. So I think that's, that's, uh, that's great. And I realize that it's also not that way everywhere in the country. Uh, there's places where primary care sports medicine practitioners are felt to be uh, competitors and they're not the orthopedic doctors are not quite as welcoming them with open arms, but very different here. I mean, it's always been a really good working relationship. And that's, you know, that's part for me, obviously, having been in that environment and seeing that. That's that's what I've looked for when I've been places, is certainly that, that collaborative agreement and that collaborative practice that, that makes it easier to everybody to work together rather than making it competitive. Yeah, we help one another. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Obviously, most of us that do sports medicine, we were, we were athletes at some point. Tell me about your kind of career as an athlete. I grew up as a son of a coach. I can remember as a very young boy being in the locker room of a high school football team, watching my dad organize a track meet. And he actually coached basketball when I was three or four years old, but I don't remember that. I grew up around sports. I can remember at a fairly young age, my father working with me, teaching me how to pass, how to punt, how to kick a football uh, so that I could compete in the pass, punt, and kick competition back then. And so I I grew up all the way through high school playing at least three sports at a time and then was lucky enough to get a a partial scholarship to Butler to play football. Uh, I didn't get to play very much, but at least I got my tuition paid for. That led me to uh, enter med school without any debt at that time, which was really valuable. Oh, absolutely. So so you mentioned the punt, pass, and uh, kick competition. So how did you do? Not very well. (laughs) The problem is... The, the early bloomers are the ones that win that. I think the top age is 12, and there's some 12-year-olds that are, well, anyway, its size is a, a an issue, and the, the bigger boys tended to win it. That's that Malcolm Gladwell theory, right? Yeah. Yeah. Born in that January, and you're good, especially yeah. for hockey. You know, obviously, you were one of the founders of AMSSM, the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine. I think that's certainly been an organization that, you know, even when I was a resident, I mean, it was a small group um, even then. I mean, obviously it was smaller when you started because you were the one of the 20 founders, but kind of tell us a little bit about how AMSSM got started. John Lombardo and Doug McKager were the, the leaders. They and others were kind of frustrated with trying to work with American College of Sports Medicine. That was our organization before AMSSM. And I think the what triggered it is they were having trouble getting clinically relevant issues on the programs for the national meeting. And then they finally decided, you know what, these folks are not interested in what we're interested in. We should just form our own organization. So Doug and John basically created a list of people that they knew that they thought might be appropriate to start a new organization. And of course, they made an effort to get folks from different specialties, men and women, and ended up with the 20. So the reason I was a founder is because I knew both John and Doug through my interactions uh, as team physicians. The other thing is that I had an important connection with Lombardo because Bill Clancy was really good friends with John Bergfeld, longtime team physician for the Cleveland Browns and at the Cleveland Clinic. And so when I had questions come up, you know, there weren't, weren't, weren't a lot of papers, not a lot of textbooks. Sometimes I'd just pick up the phone and ask John his opinion. 
and he was very, very helpful, a very important uh, mentor in my early going. They explained to everybody why they thought, you know, we should get this new organization going, and I kind of half-blindly said, sure, I'm in, and little did we know how, how it would grow. Yeah, I think we're at, uh, I think the last time I remember looking at it, there's well over, I think, 3,000 members of AMSSM yep. now. That's correct. Um, you know, pediatrics, we were we used to be number two as far as the number of, of members uh, for pediatrics with family practice by far being the number one. Uh, but I don't know if you know that we've been passed by physical medicine and rehabilitation now, so now we're the number three most populated. Oh, geez. Yeah, no, I, I did know. not know that. I know. Well, <laughs> PM&R, they've been growing. They've been growing. Yeah. Obviously, it's a very robust organization now. It has a lot of influence in the sports medicine community. It's recognized internationally now. But I'm sure there were times back in the early days of AMSSM where, where probably there may have been some times where that you thought that the organization may not move on. Were there those? Yeah. It turns out the worst time was right at the beginning of my presidency. I was the fourth president. Jim Puffer, thank goodness, figured out, he was the third president, figured out that we were paying too much for our executive director and that the way it was projected for the next year or two, we were going to go under financially. And so we uh, said, sorry, we got to get a different person. And we got somebody that was in the uh, family medicine community that was well known to family medicine docs. And that was Jody Gold. And Jody essentially rescued us, ran our organization on a shoestring. And, uh, you know, we had, during my presidency, we had no money to spend. We just tried to keep her going. And uh, we made it through a tough time, thanks to Jody and Brian Halpburn, who uh, was the, followed me. He was the next president, but had more business savvy. And uh, we made it through it. Yeah, I think Jody probably is probably one of the most under-recognized individuals in that organization. We certainly recognize her annually at the annual meeting, but I, I don't think people realize how much of a role she played in keeping AMSSM afloat for many, many years. It was huge. Yeah. And that part of what made it happen is she was really good at running a meeting and still is. She really knows how to organize, organize a meeting and make it, make it work. That, I think, sustained us during the tough times. Absolutely. You know what? We're going to take a quick break right now, and we will be right back. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. Editing podcasts can be, ugh, rough. Everyone knows that you'll spend at least double the time you use creating the podcast when editing it. Then there's the control freak factor and the gotta get it right the first time. Well, it's time to shove all that out the door and make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. The Editor Core is a talented, experienced team of podcast editors that have edited tens of thousands of hours of podcast content, and they're ready for yours now. Check out EditorCore.com because it's time to make your podcast soar. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great, cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing the Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com. 
and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From the Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. We're happy to have you back with us with my guest today, Dr. Greg Landry, one of my mentors and teachers uh, from the world of pediatric sports. So, Greg, let's jump right back in. You created the first pediatric sports medicine fellowship in the nation. And so, you know, there's been a lot of uh, successful pediatric sports medicine physicians who've come from training from there. So is there some secret at UW that you have as far as uh, how that worked? Serendipity uh, at its best. Um, Phil Farrell, who was then chair of pediatrics, told me, he called me into his office and said, I have some hospital money kind of left over, and, and I think uh, we should use it to start an adolescent sports medicine fellowship. I said, really? I said, sure, let's do it. It was his doing to get it started. He kind of wanted to combine it with adolescent medicine, I think, to, in part to justify it to the hospital, but that's where it all started. And then the reason why I think the fellowship was popular right from the get-go is that we had this reputation that Clancy had already created of good sports medicine. A lot of what we needed for the fellowship was already in place in orthopedics. We had conferences, we had the annual symposium, we had really good musculoskeletal radiologists, we had great physical therapy. Everything that we needed was in place, and that's why I think it did fairly well right from the get-go. Yeah, I'd love to put together a family tree sometime of basically looking at that uh, that lineage from from UW and and all the people who have either either done training there residency wise and have gone on to be sports medicine physicians or those that have done the fellowship there and then their influence over pediatric sports medicine. I I think it's a pretty impressive uh, impressive tree. Yeah, if you included residents, because as soon as Bernhardt came on board, then it became I think we were the first peds department that had two pediatricians doing sports medicine. Then we attracted more residents. And if you include all the residents, we got a pretty good number of people. Yeah. You were a physician with uh, UW Badgers, go Badgers, for (laughs) for three decades. You know, kind of give me some of your your high points of stuff that you experienced over those 30 plus years. And was anything kind of not so great? One of the things I, I, I always knew, but it's fun to win. There are fewer injuries when you win. True. Probably the biggest thrill of my career is when UW football earned a berth to the Rose Bowl in 1993. We knew we were getting better, but we weren't sure we were good enough to to win the Big Ten. And to clinch a tie with Ohio State in our last game, which interestingly enough occurred in Japan, knowing that we were going to go to the Rose Bowl and hadn't been there for a long, long time, and then go and win the dang thing, that was such a thrill. The fact that the Badgers are going back to the Rose Bowl this year really will bring back a lot of fond memories. The other fond memory of winning was the hockey championships. I was privileged to be part of two national championships. And the most recent one was really special because both the men and women won the national championship in 2006. And it was the first time both the men and women from one institution had won national championships. So that's fun. That's always fun to be around. Oh yeah, it's it's funny for hockey, you know, as a as a student there and going to watch hockey games. Anytime I watch a hockey game now, even you know now you know being here in St. Louis with the Blues yep. and you know having fun with the the Stanley Cup this past year for the first time ever, it was uh, I always still 
have that in the back of my mind, the Civ chant. And so, <laughs> and if you don't know about the Civ chant, because I, I think this must be unique to UW because people look at me weird every time Same that I me. do it. But if a, you score on the goalie, you start chanting Civ, Civ, Civ. And, and I still have that in the back of my head just from those days of watching hockey there. <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. So how about how about any uh, anything that wasn't so great as far as your experiences? Well, a... the hard parts were uh, come to mind are the deaths of a couple of coaches. Hmm. Uh, early in my career, we lost our football coach Dave McLean suddenly, uh-huh. and that was devastating to the football program. They had an awful year the next year, really struggled. Uh, the other really hard death was Steve Lowe. Uh, Steve Lowe was our volleyball coach, and the year before he died, we had made the NCAA tournament for the first time in I don't know how long. Obviously a very good coach, well-respected, well-liked by everybody, and suddenly develops lung cancer and dies a month later. Um, Those young women really had a tough time of it, but the assistants did a nice job of taking over, and they actually did fairly well that season. The other negative thing that comes to mind is we had an associate athletic director at the athletic department, and his wisdom threatened to take away some of our salary support. A lot of people in the medical school got wind of that and got in the chancellor's ear, and the chancellor said, no, you're not going to do that. These guys worked their tails off. This is an important part of uh, their support, and you got to keep it. And fortunately, the chancellor prevailed. I mean, you know, I, I took it as a disrespect by the athletic directors. Sure. Um, and still do. Yeah. Uh, I still have season football tickets, and I have to give a donation for that, but that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, and again, it's 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 recognizing the value and the time you put in, and certainly, I'm sure, you know, if we looked at it, compensation for what we do is probably not on par for the amount of time that we spend. But you know, again, that's one thing. We're we're in it for the athletes, and we're there to of help course. them. And and we're very lucky to have the. We, I, I realize many places there there there's no salary support right. for team docs. They right. volunteer, or they're part of student health, or whatever. But still, it it. Uh, it was kind of like a kick in the gut. Sure, sure. Is there one thing that you can think of in your sports medicine career that was the rewarding, the most rewarding thing out of your 30-plus years? And Oh, gosh. Um, there is no one thing that stands out. It, it's fun to watch people succeed. It's fun to help an athlete at any level do what they want to do and do it well because you help them. It's a, a great pleasure to have people in training like yourself, med school, residency, get turned on by sports medicine and helping them uh, be able to practice sports medicine uh, as, you know, when they get out. So there's a lot of things that make this very, very satisfying. You know, we can talk about injuries now and, you know, and from a pediatric standpoint. So, I mean, the injuries themselves haven't changed, so to speak. I mean, the same injuries have been around. You know, we talk about epidemics of things like ACL tears in, in pre-adolescent kids now and anything that strike you now that's different now in sports medicine and injuries now in 2020 compared to when you may have started in practice or or even just your thoughts on the explosion of the youth sports industry well i think we're seeing more overuse injuries i don't think that i saw anywhere near the overuse injuries at the beginning of my career compared to later in my career and i think again this is related to early sports specialization which uh, is our current uh, hot research topic, and, and fortunately, they are be- beginning to show that kids that er- specialize early are at higher risk for overuse injuries, burnout, all the th- all a lot of negative things. I don't know about you, but growing up, we used to have 
sandlot football, flag football, you know, pickup games on the basketball court. And, boy, you just don't see much of that anymore. I mean, everything's organized. The, fo- the parents are taking them to two or three sports in a week, and that's not good. <laughs> oh, no. I, I mean, I remember in summers going to my grandmother's house, and there was a little school that was around the corner, and so I would take my baseball glove over there. I would take a rubber ball because a regular baseball wouldn't work for this, and I would. There was actually already pre-drawn on the bricks of the building, basically a square that could be a strike zone, and I basically just sat there and I just practiced throwing, pitching, and simulating stuff. And occasionally, my brother would come over and you know he'd try and pretend to be a batter, and we'd re- recreate you know, different things we've seen in baseball games. But, you know, you don't see that free play and that, that just no. that creativity. And my wife and I, we've, we've even talked about this, about, you know, we need to think about just coming up with that Sandlot League and making it so informal. You know, it's hard to make an organized thing like that informal, but making it informal. So it's just it's just fun. We get together and we just do that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, you're right. We just don't see that much anymore. And, you know, I think we're seeing that a lot in in and I've talked about this with many people about, you know, we just kids are not developing all those necessary other just free movement skills. It's right. so regimented and so structured. And, and I think and I'm sure you probably agree that this is probably a big influence in why we see some of these overuse injuries is they're overtraining one particular muscle group and they're not balancing their body out. Absolutely. Yeah. Over your career, anything that you consider to be influential in the world of pediatric sports medicine that with, you know, diagnosing injuries, management of injuries that could be good or could be bad that develop over the years? Well, I think the use of ultrasound's been predominantly a good thing. Non-invasive, virtually no harm. And of course, just like with any new tool, people have to learn how to use it. MRI was just coming on as I started my career. And, of course, MRIs are good things and bad things. I think it's taken us quite a while to figure out what's normal in kids on MRIs. Yep. Uh, I think the bad, one of the bad things about MRIs is that the public often thinks the MRI will have the answer. And, uh, you know, why aren't you doing an MRI? Well, it's because you, you don't need an MRI. The MRI is a good thing and a bad thing. And I think overall it's, it's good. We're, we're able to diagnose things that we weren't able to diagnose very well early in my career. And I think it, you know, sometimes the MRI, uh, at least early in my career, I th- certainly think it helped validate my physical exam skills, no question. Not yeah. that that's the right way to do that is to do a test just to verify my physical exam skills. But, I mean, that's part of the thing that I love about sports medicine and I've loved all along is that it's a lot of what we can figure out is just by talking to the patient and putting your hands on them. And yeah. if you're good about doing those two things, you could probably figure out the vast majority of things in sports medicine, regardless of all the imaging. Yes, the imaging is necessary at some points, but that's that's probably the coolest thing about what I do is I love being able to talk to patients and being able to put hands on them and figure out what's wrong. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So I want to talk about something a little bit more controversial. <laughs> so you were you were with Bill Meehan, uh, Dr. Bill Meehan. You were uh, one of the co-lead authors on the American Academy of Pediatrics statement on tackling and youth football. And this got a lot of controversy because the statement itself did not outright come out and say that tackling in football in youth should be stopped or uh, giving a specific recommendation for an age. We know that there's been some surveys done of pediatricians who at least over 70% said they wouldn't let their kids play football, and even a greater percentage supported age restrictions on tackling. I didn't actually even know about this until this came across later on, but um, apparently even the AAP back in the 50s had recommended against tackle football. We, I mean, 
once those statements are retired, I don't think many of us have that institutional recollection of that type of stuff, but that was out there. So, so some felt that, that, that the statement that came out was reversing that recommendation. So do you have any comments about the statement? I know some people have probably misinterpreted a little bit what the conclusions were, and I think that's probably part of it. But um, since right. you were one of the lead authors, kind of give me your thoughts. Well, first of all, obviously, Bill and I didn't know about the statement back in the 50s, or we would have included it in the statement. Basically, and, and Bill did the bulk of the work first as a typical first author, but, you know, we scoured the literature for reasons why perhaps we should ban tackle football at the youth level. So we wanted to make this an evidence-based statement. And when there was no evidence, we, we felt we could not say ban tackle football at the youth level. We got criticized quite a bit because the academy came out and said no checking at the youth level. But... It turned out, turned out that was well studied, and there was good evidence to support that recommendation, and that's why the academy made that recommendation. No such thing in tackle football. Just very very little information to help guide a decision regarding tackle football. Now, I do want to comment on the fact that so many pediatricians are saying they wouldn't let their kid play tackle football. One of my takes on this is that the media is reaching everybody, including doctors. Doctors don't realize how much they get influenced by the media. The media sensationalizes anything that will evoke emotion. And so as soon as something comes out about CTE or something negative about football, man, they get that gets lots of attention. Just because 70% of the pediatricians say that doesn't mean that I think a, a, a group of experts should necessarily go along with them. I think we we have committees and councils and groups to make statements to help guide the care of, uh, of our children, but I don't think we're obligated to do what the majority of the pedi- pediatricians think. You know, on a side of that, you know, I, I'm curious what you, what you would think is even if the AAP did come out with a recommendation saying that, you know, we should not be doing tackle football before the age of 14, just kind of your gut, just over the your lifetime of dealing with this and, and, and a statement like that, how much do you think that would actually change things in the sport of football? Not right away, they wouldn't. I mean, it's the, these statements, first of all, I'm not sure all the pediatricians read them. And if they do, they, they're not real anxious to change what they do or what they say. I don't think it would have a huge influence. You know, people are beginning to poo-poo tackle football already, and, and there's some Good, you know, good reasons for that, uh, but I, I'm, I'm skeptical that it would it would uh, have that big impact, at least initially, anyway. I, I think it's you know it's kind of interesting. I did a talk on this recently, um, Greg, where I looked at some of the statements that we have done at the AAP, where we've made some very specific recommendations. So we've recommended against that we completely oppose boxing in youth, but yet yes. there are still national rankings of eight and nine and ten year olds in the world of boxing out there. So clearly. We haven't gotten that to work. <laughs> right. You know, we've recommended against, uh, and the AP statement is below the age of 15 for checking in hockey, yet the recommendation by USA Hockey is 13 and under. So oh, yeah. so they still haven't really kind of moved that up. We didn't recommend against heading in soccer, yet U.S. soccer already came out with their recommendations to ban that. We've already seen a 10% decline in football without the AP recommending uh, participation in football without us recommending that. So... I'm almost wondering if we maybe shouldn't make recommendations and let the, the public decide on their own, because clearly when we've made <laughs> recommendations, they haven't really followed them to a T. Seems um, like it. 
And it just seems like we may be better off just kind of let things happen the way they are. I mean, I, I totally, and I get where people are coming from with this as far as the whole tackle football thing. I mean, and, and I think probably a lot of people who um, criticize the statement talk about the common sense component. It's not good thing and good practice to hit your head repetitively. We all know that. I, I certainly think that that's something that definitely we can all agree on, but I still think it's, it's, we still need to figure stuff out. I don't think we need to, you know, go through the 30 year long study and try and figure it out. But I certainly think in the standpoint of stuff, I, I think common sense hopefully will prevail, but everybody. Well, and it. I think, yeah, I think part of the problem is the game has changed. My colleague, John Wilson said he watched video of uh, the 1963 Rose Bowl, Wisconsin. Who'd they play in? I don't know who they played in 63, but anyway, he said it was a different game. There was no leading with the head. There was the tackling was very different. You know, the evolution of the modern football helmet has now allowed uh, athletes to use the helmet as a weapon and to be less fearful of blows to the head. And I think we need to go back and teach players to protect their head. You can bring a guy down without a lot of trauma to your head. Now we're not going to eliminate all the head trauma, but I just I do I do worry about how the game has changed in a bad way. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of laughed at it initially of John Madden's recommendation that we should all go back to the leather helmets for football. And once the player hits each other's head with the leather helmet back on, that probably will stop a lot of what we see already in football. And I thought it crazy at the time, but I'm like, yeah, that may not be that bad of an idea, actually, because that may change players' perception on how they do stuff. Right. So, you know, just the the equipment itself, I mean, when we talk about the equipment, I think that's where... I, I get a little frustrated because I think that there's a lot of preying on families and their concern over the injuries of how we see equipment changes and, and these are the next, next best thing and this is going to help prevent concussion, yet we really haven't seen those reductions in concussion rates with new equipment. No, heavens no. And again, the better the helmet, the more likely they use it as a weapon. Right. You know, my, my colleagues here at Wisconsin did a wonderful study on helmet brand and, and concussions in the, at the high school level. Didn't make any difference. Yeah didn't make any difference. So I'd like to to end our talk today with just kind of uh, what I call our pearls, because we always talk about pearls in medicine, those little nuggets that we find are the most useful things to us and we can hold on to. So is, is do you have a favorite pearl for sports medicine providers? Well, I had to give this some thought because, uh, as you may know, I, I have a talk called 30 Pearls for 30 Years. And I guess the most important one that's actually kind of a generic one came from John Bergfeld, who did a similar talk for the orthopedic docs when Clancy retired. And John Bergfeld, again, is the was the longstanding uh, head team physician for the Cleveland Browns, and he's an orthopedic surgeon that's uh, very thoughtful, and he's a, he's a wonderful clinician. And I think his number one pearl in his talk was, sit down and shut up. <laughs> and his point was, we don't learn anything about our patients when we're talking. And most of us probably talk more than we should. Mm-hmm. And we should do more listening. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would like to thank Dr. Greg Landry for joining us today, my producer, Mike Wilkerson, and the Two Guys Talking Podcasting Network. We'll hope you join us for future episodes. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.